Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for November 2nd through 8th. And this week we will be discussing Mormon chapters 7 through 9. Well, as you can see, I remain in this hotel I've been here for a week. I haven't been allowed to leave this hotel room for a week. I haven't completely gone crazy yet, but uh, I still got a week left. So hopefully uh, my next lesson will be filmed from uh, a location other than this stupid hotel room. uh, And uh, life will be much better because I'll be able to actually leave uh, the confines of, of this little room. And of course, the big news going on in the world this week is you got the U.S. presidential elections coming up in just two days. So for those of you seeing it before the elections, good luck. And for those of you watching it after the elections, also good luck. Well, this week, uh, diving, we're going to finish off the Book of Mormon. Not the full book, but of course, uh, Mormon's small record. We still have two books to go after this, the Book of Ether and the Book of Moroni. But we are definitely getting close to the end. Last week's uh, lesson witnessed the uh, complete fall and destruction of the Nephite nation. Um, So what we are left with is uh, we're now down to Mormon and his son Moroni, and there's a few other uh, Nephites that have not yet been killed, and then there's a bunch of Lamanites, uh, and that's really all that's left yet uh, with this once great uh, people who have uh, unfortunately Uh, fallen uh, because of their pride uh, and because they uh, refused to repent and come unto Christ. At least that's the explanation that Mormon uh, and his son Moroni give to us. So last week we ended with chapter 6 in which uh, again Mormon went into great detail to discuss how this army uh, and you know it's hard to imagine and and separate really Mormon's emotions uh, from from what went on. Uh, You know, he was the commander of these armies and ultimately his armies were completely annihilated. Uh, You know, likely Mormon felt in some ways a a supreme sense of of guilt, uh, like he had failed his people. Um, Of course, he realizes that it was his people that had failed. They had made the the decisions uh, that ultimately led to their destruction. Uh, but no doubt for Mormon, uh, this was a, a very difficult pill to swallow, uh, knowing that he was the leader of the Nephite armies, and uh, these, these armies were eventually destroyed. Um, of course, he was their leader for an incredibly long time. Uh, for 50-plus years, uh, he was the head of their armies. Uh, there was a few years in between in which... Uh, course he he refused to lead but uh, over a span of 50 year period he he started off and he finished uh, as their leader so Mormon was truly uh, an unbelievable and incredible uh, an incredible man uh, just both in his 
physical abilities, leadership abilities, and, and spiritual abilities. Uh, really just an all-around, um, you know, kind of a, a rock star individual, one that we can all uh, try to emulate. Well, chapter 7 in the Book of Mormon uh, is, is Mormon's final chapter. Um, it's interesting. We get uh, it, 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 these three chapters today read as if uh, whoever the as if the author, in this case Moroni, uh, was planning on ending with the end of the Book of Mormon. Of course, we later learn that he adds uh, the Jaredite plates and then a few final words of his uh, at the very end. Um, but it, but it, it, these chapters very much read as if Moroni was about to. Uh, to give up and bury the plates after uh, finishing these few chapters. Uh, but in chapter 7, we have Mormon finishing his record before handing it off to his son Moroni. And of course, all of his people have been killed. Um, and so he's no longer, he can't be writing to them. Um, and so he, he writes it uh, actually to the descendants of the Lamanites, these people that have just annihilated his people, uh, who he no doubt had you know, little like for. Uh, you know, we've talked earlier about how in, uh, in certain passages in the earlier portions uh, of the Book of Mormon, in which Mormon is editor editorializing, uh, it appears that he, there, there's a number of places where he's not, he, he doesn't use kind words to describe the Lamanites, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, completely understandable why Mormon, who spent his whole life uh, fighting against them, warring against the Lamanites. It's understandable why Mormon would not be a big fan of the Lamanites. But nonetheless, uh, he's, he's a big enough man that his final chapter, uh, he addresses to them, uh, asking the, the Lamanites to, to repent and to come unto Christ and, and to be something better, to be more uh, than than they have been to repent and, 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 and to live up to their expectations and, and, and their covenantal promises because they are, of course, uh, a remnant of the house of Israel. Uh, they are uh, subject to those promises which God has made for the house of Israel. And, and he's, you know, his plea with them is, you know, please live up to, to these expectations, live up to this potential uh, that is in you, uh, to this spiritual potential. Um, and so we see that's kind of the, the gist of, uh, of, of chapter 7 uh, as, as we begin here. And let's start with verses 5 and 6. Know ye that ye must come to the knowledge of your fathers, and repent of all your sins and iniquities, and believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he was slain by the Jews, and by the power of the Father he hath risen again, whereby he hath gained the victory over the grave. And also in him is the sting of death swallowed up. And he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, whereby man must be raised to stand before his judgment seat. So here he's, uh, he, he's telling them about the plan of salvation. He's reminding them, he's teaching them of Jesus Christ, as if he hasn't already taught it over and over within uh, the plates themselves. He's, uh, he's telling them another time. This is the plan of salvation. It involves uh, Jesus Christ. It involves uh, the Son of God, Him coming down and being slain, uh, and, and Him rising again and gaining victory over the grave and taking away, swallowing up the sting of death, which is certainly something Mormon uh, was very familiar with, the sting of death, given that everyone around Him 
that he knows and that he's that he loves, except for his son Moroni, uh, has been killed. And I love how verse five starts with, uh, "You must come to a knowledge of your fathers, or to the knowledge of your fathers." So actually, misspoke. It's not come to a knowledge of your fathers. He's not saying come learn about your ancestors. What he's saying is come to that knowledge which your ancestors had. I think that's what he's saying here. And what is that knowledge? Of course, it is that knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is that knowledge of the plan of salvation, of his, of the resurrection, and the promise that through Christ we can overcome death. But there's, uh, I, th- I think it's so profound this idea that he he begins his discussion. You know, this brief summary that he's giving of the plan of salvation by telling them to come to the knowledge of their fathers, the knowledge that their fathers had. And we've talked about this before, but at the end of the day, that's really what religion is in a lot of ways. If you take away the the spiritual aspect of it um, and just look at it from a, you know, a somewhat secular traditional point of view, you know, religion is how do we take wisdom and knowledge of the generations that have come before us. How do we take that wisdom? How do we take that knowledge? And how do we package it in a way that is easily transmittable from generation to generation? Um, and, and that's, you know, a very anthropological understanding of what uh, religion actually is. And that's kind of what Mormon is telling them to do here. Come to the knowledge that your fathers have. Come to their religion. Come to their understanding of of things that are spiritual, of the universe, of the purpose of life, of our relationship with God. Don't try to hit the reset button every single time. I think that's one of the big challenges and frustrations that I see with current society is that we refuse to learn from the wisdom and the knowledge that previous generations had. You know, we're now so focused on, on science and science tells us this and science tells us that. And, you know, it's like the only thing that we understand is something that can be scientifically proven. Whereas we are are just willing to basically throw away our religion, throw away those traditions that have, and and the wisdom of ages that have come down through previous generations. And as I said, again, religion takes that wisdom and takes that knowledge and packages it in a way that's easily transmittable. And it does, through, does so through, through stories. It does, th- does so through certain rites, uh, certain rituals that are passed down, that are meant to teach wisdom, meant to teach order, meant to teach spirituality. Uh, and, and, you know, it's very much to our demise if we will take those things and, and throw them away and say, nope, those were wrong, those were just superstitions of the past, we're going to hit the reset button and, and rely on our own knowledge going forward. Uh, what a complete and total waste. That's, that's what they did in China. Uh, that's literally what the Cultural Revolution was about, was let's get rid of all of the things of our previous culture, all of the traditions and the superstitions, and, and now we're going to uh, move forward with our new scientific-based uh, progress. And, and of course, it ended in absolute disaster, and, and that is the result of any society uh, that will take the knowledge of ages past and throw it away. It will always end in, in disaster. And in some ways that seems like that's what Mormon is telling 
the, the Nephites and the Lamanites that they have done. You know, don't throw away that knowledge that has come down and has been meticulously preserved for thousands of years. There's truth in there. There's knowledge in there. And it gets down to a discussion of, you know, the difference between something being true historically and truth. This was a conversation I was having with my, with my daughter the other day. Uh, you know, just because something is not historically true, just because something didn't happen or can't be scientifically proven doesn't mean it is not true. And, you know, my favorite example of this is, you know, this, the parables that Christ told. Take the story of the Good Samaritan. We know that's not a true story. It's a parable. It's fake. It never happened. There was no Samaritan. There was no man walking um, from Jerusalem to Jericho. There, there was no Levite priest that walked on the other side. These, there's no end. None of these things are true. This is a totally made up story. But this totally made up story, even though it's not scientifically accurate, even though it's not historically uh, true from that sense of the word, it is full of truth. It is radiating with truth. And if we're going to take all of these things that aren't true by a scientific or a, uh, or a historical standard and th toss them aside, then what type of truth is it we're looking for? Then what exactly is it that we are, that we are seeking if it is not truth? Um, and, and, and that seems to be a, a part of what Mormon is, is, is saying here. It's, he's saying, look, you Lamanites, okay, you guys, you guys won. But don't forget about the truth that my people tried to share with you. Please take it. Please accept this truth. Please come unto Christ. Please learn of this plan of salvation. Because eventually, all of your scientific knowledge, all of your uh, historically accurate portrayals of things are all eventually going to come to naught because of the great equalizer. Because we're all going to pass away. Our hearts will all stop beating at some point and we are all going to die. Then your scientific knowledge is not going to save you. Then your correct understanding of historical events are going to be completely meaningless to you. The only thing that will save you at that point is truth. And of course, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the only thing that saves. Come to that knowledge because that is truth. Our understanding and our testimonies of Jesus Christ is what truth is. And for me, this idea that Christ takes up the sting of death, he swallows it up, this pain, this suffering, this heartache, all of, the, all of the hopes and the potentials that were there but have been completely destroyed uh, by death. Christ takes all of that and he swallows it. He internalizes that for himself. And then he makes it possible for us to overcome that sting, that separation, that death, uh, because of his resurrection, of course. Uh, verses 7 through 8. And he hath brought to pass the redemption of the world, whereby he that is found guiltless before him at the judgment day hath it given unto him to dwell in the presence of God in his kingdom, to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above unto the Father and unto the Son and unto the Holy Ghost, which are one God, in a state of happiness, 
which hath no end. Therefore, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and lay hold upon the gospel of Christ, which shall be set before you, not only in, the record, in this record, but also in the record which shall come unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you. So here continues to plead with them to accept Jesus Christ, uh, the redemption of the world, that will stand guiltless before Christ, which is an interesting concept um, because, you know, it's a question of how are we going to stand guiltless. Of course, it's impossible for any of us to stand guiltless because of anything that we've done, uh, because we have not done anything that uh, would bring about uh, guiltiness, because we all sin and we all make mistake. So the only way that it is possible for us to be found guiltless before Christ at the judgment day is if he takes away our guilt. In the same way that he takes the pain and the sorrow associated with death that we learned about in verse 5, and he swallows that up, he internalizes that, he takes that and makes it his. He does the same thing with our guilt. He internalizes our guilt. He takes it upon himself. And so because of our relationship with Christ, when we stand before Christ at the last day, it is possible for us to be found guiltless. Not that we are guiltless, right? That's an, that's an interesting uh, use of, of, of wording here too. He doesn't say that you will be guiltless before him, but that you will be found guiltless. That the decree that will come from our judge will be that of not guilty. And again, it won't be because of anything that we've done, but it'll be solely because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we have covenanted with him. Because we have taken his name upon ourselves. And because of the strength and the merits of his name, we have a chance to be found guiltless. We have a chance through his grace and his mercy to stand before him uh, without the repercussions that come from our guilt. We will have guilt, but we will be found, there, we will have reason to be guilty, but we will ultimately be found guiltless uh, because of Jesus Christ and because of his atonement. And then, of course, because of that, we will go into the presence of God to sing ceaseless praises with the choirs above to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Ghost. What a, what a beautiful idea. And then in verse 8, as we just read, you know, repent, be baptized in the name of Christ, lay hold upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how Mormon, he's, he's spent his entire life preparing these records. And these are his final verses. And he said so much in these plates, hundreds of pages of, of, of stories and of doctrines and of amazing teachings. And now he's about to wrap, wrap it up. And what is it that he writes about? Repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, laying hold upon the gospel of Christ, you know, grabbing hold of it, not letting go, enduring to the end. And then interestingly, he testifies of the Bible too. Here, if you, if you read verse 8 and it carries on to verse, verse 9, he's, he's talking about two different records that will come together and testify of each other. And in so doing, they testify of Jesus Christ. 
testifying of his gospel, testifying that he is the only source of salvation that we have. Verse 10, And ye will also know that ye are a remnant of the seed of Jacob, therefore ye are numbered among the people of the first covenant. And if it so be that ye believe in Christ and are baptized, first with water, then with fire, and with the Holy Ghost, following the example of our Savior, according to that which he hath commanded us, it shall be well with you in the day of judgment. Amen. And so thus ends Mormon's record. Beautiful how he closes it, testifying of baptism of water and a baptism of the fi of fire or the Holy Ghost. And, you know, carrying on the verse we just read about the importance of, of, of repentance and belief and faith in Christ. He's closing with the fourth article of faith. He's closing with the first principles and ordinances of the gospel because he knows that is ultimately what it is all about. Having faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins, covenanting with Christ through baptism, and then allowing the Holy Ghost to purify us, to make us better, to, to change us so that we are prepared to return to the presence of God. Thus ends Mormon's record. What, what a beautiful way, really, to, to end this incredible record which Mormon has preserved and, and transferred to us than with his testimony of these basic gospel principles. So we go to chapter 8, and now Moroni takes over the record. <clears throat> uh, Moroni tells us that his father Mormon uh, has been killed, along with many other Nephites, and the record is now uh, in his hands. Um, and again, it, it appears like Moroni is only planning on re recording just a few pages here. Um, and then later we'll see he adds, uh, he adds the book of e books of Ether and Moroni. Um, but, but I think we read these as, as coming from a Moroni who's inherited these plates from his father. Doesn't plan on saying too much, but really just wants to reiterate and, and capture uh, the things that were most important to his father, and it's and it's based on that. It's it's that that he's going to, going to finalize, uh, going to end. He's planning at least on ending his record. Uh, and so let's turn to in in chapter eight. Let's start with uh, verse twelve actually. And whoso receiveth this record and shall not condemn it because of the imperfections which are in it, the same shall know of greater things than these. Behold, I am Moroni. And were it possible, I would make all things known unto you. So I love how Moroni, <laughs> he, he kind of starts his record by putting down the record. By saying, look, if you receive these things, be kind. Don't judge us because of, because of our imperfections. Um, and I think he's also saying, look, have reasonable expectations for this book. I think sometimes in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we also, we often get ourselves in trouble because uh, we put too high of expectations upon our scriptures, upon our leaders, uh, upon and upon ourselves. Uh, and look, the only thing that's ever been perfect in this world is, is, is Christ. That is our faith. The Book of Mormon is not a perfect record. There's, Mormon, Moroni's telling us here, there's mistakes in here. We don't know exactly what mistakes here he's referring to, but he's telling us this, this record is not perfect. There's, there's things in here that are, that are mistakes. So does that mean he got some of the, histor the history wrong? 
yeah, probably. Did he get some of the doctrinal teaching wrong? We don't know. There, there could be some speculation in here. I mean, I'm thinking back to Alma when he's speaking with his son uh, about the resurrection. Uh, one part, he basically tells us, he's like, this is my opinion. I'm not going to promise you this is the way it actually is, but this is what I think about it. Uh, there's, there's probably a lot of things in here that are the opinions of these, of these good uh, men that left us this record. Does that mean their record is not reliable? Of course not. Christ gave it to us. It's as reliable as it can get. We should be studying it, and we should take from it uh, those, th that which we can, the, the lessons that are meant to be drawn from it. Uh, we should, uh, but we, we shouldn't expect it to be perfect. Uh, but of course, just, although it is not perfect, it is more than able to stand on its own if we have reasonable expectations for it. If we come to it humbly, uh, realizing that we don't know everything and that we have lessons that we can learn uh, from the people that recorded this book of scripture. That uh, our job is not to sit down and page by page criticize what they have to say. Our job is to, is, is, is to study what they have to say, to try to capture their spirit, try to capture what it is their understanding was and what it is that they're trying to convey to us. Why did they go to the hassle of writing all this stuff down in the first place? You know, it's, it's my belief that, uh, you know, each of these pages, each of these lessons, every, everything within the Book of Mormon was, you know, meticulously planned out and crafted uh, by its authors, especially by Mormon. And so, you know, not a surprise that Moroni, Mormon's son, is saying, look, be, be kind to my dad. He, he did the best that he could. I, I know he wasn't a perfect man, and therefore I don't expect the record that he left behind us to be perfect. But, but be kind to him. Uh, trust that he was a good person and that he did the best he could uh, to convey his testimony of Christ and his witness uh, of the truthfulness of the gospel and what actually happened to his people. And, you know, as importantly, the consequences of what happens when you don't follow. Uh, because that's, you know, unfortunately how, how Mormon's record ends. And this theme continues in verses uh, 17 through 19. And if there be faults, they be the faults of a man. But behold, we know no fault. Nevertheless, God knoweth all things. Therefore he that condemneth, let him be aware, lest he shall be in danger of hellfire. For behold, the same that judgeth rashly shall be judged rashly again. For according to his works shall his wages be. Therefore, he that smiteth shall be smitten again of the Lord. So as we judge the Book of Mormon, as we read through its pages, and as we try to uh, draw the lessons that are in there, we need to be charitable. We need to make sure we're not uh, putting its authors up to an impossible standard. And of course, that doesn't apply to just the authors, but also to the people that have, uh, especially Joseph Smith, that have been called by God to bring forth this record into our day. We need to make sure that as we study uh, their lives, and as we study about them, and as we study the things that they wrote down for us, uh, that we do so in a charitable manner, recognizing that uh, they don't claim to be perfect, but they claim to do the work of the Lord. And they tried their best to do the Lord's work, but no doubt they failed from time to time. 
And therefore, if we are harsh in our judgments of them, it should be of no surprise if God uses those same harsh standards uh, in his judgment of us. So if we are charitable with those that we don't uh, always agree with or that we don't understand what they're doing or whose faults we find, then we can expect God to be charitable with us as he reveals to us uh, our own faults and our own mistakes and our own shortcomings. And uh, one other idea that comes to me from these few verses is this idea that, uh, you know, if you those that judge the Book of Mormon unfairly, and there's many of them out there, they they set up a, you know, I I think the straw man argument is is probably the best uh, way to describe those that criticize uh, the Book of Mormon. They set up and sometimes we in the church are, are guilty of helping them create these these arguments. But the straw man argument is essentially the idea of you <clears throat> you set the expectations for what it is you're trying to tear down, and you set the expectations impossibly high, and therefore when they don't meet those expectations, you draw the conclusion that uh, you know it's it's a it's a fraud or it's a phony or it's not reliable or whatever conclusion that it is you're trying to draw. Uh, by setting up that straw, uh, that straw man argument. Um, but, you know, it, it occurs to me that those who uh, attack the Book of Mormon or refuse to see the value in it um, are, it seems to be they're incapable of recognizing uh, the value in God's work. Uh, in other words, if, if you can't see the value and the beauty of the stories in the Book of Mormon. And if you are unwilling to, then it's because you are unwilling to see them, I think. But, and, and if you can't see that value, if you can't see God's hand in the book, how could you expect to see God's hand anywhere else? If you can't see the beauty and the value of the Book of Mormon, how could you see the beauty and the value of anything else that has to do Uh, with God's work. In other words, if we can't recognize God's work, how can we expect to recognize God? Uh, Reminds me of in the book of John, uh, chapter 3, as Christ is interacting uh, with with Nicodemus, uh, telling him that he must be born again, which is his ultimate conclusion. Uh, He states this in John 3, verse 3. He says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I interpret that to mean, unless you have a change of heart, unless you are willing to look beyond the way in which the world sees things, you won't even recognize the kingdom of God you won't see it. It could be right in front of your nose. But because you haven't been born again, because you refuse to adjust your sight, your vision, to the way in which God sees things, because you hold on to your notions of uh, uh, perhaps science or having to prove things or you know false traditions or unwilling to let go of of your pride, whatever the reason. But if you're not born again, and if you don't refuse to 
get rid of those things, the kingdom of God will be right in front of you and you won't even notice it. You won't even see the truth uh, that is right in front of you. And it seems to me that that is the mistake that many who attack the Book of Mormon make, is that they are not willing to let go of whatever preconceived notions they have. And because of that, they are not able to see God's hand, even though it's right in front of their face, as plain as a book right in, right in front of their nose. Uh, but they refuse to see it. Uh, they refuse to look for it, perhaps. Um, and because of that, if they can't even recognize God's work, how could they possibly uh, recognize God? And, and so from this discussion of <clears throat> Moroni pleading with the reader to please be kind, please be charitable with this record. It's a good record. It's a true record. It will lead you to Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean it's not without mistakes. Uh, he goes from there to, uh, to certain warnings about our day, about the day in which the Book of Mormon comes forth. Uh, verses 26 through 28. And no one needs say they shall not come, for they surely shall. For the Lord hath spoken it. For out of the earth shall they come by the hand of the Lord, and none can stay it. And it shall come in a day when it shall be said that miracles are done away. And it shall come even as if one speak from the dead. And it shall come in a day when the blood of saints shall cry unto the Lord because of secret combinations and the works of darkness. Yea, it shall come in a day when the power of God shall be denied and churches become defiled and be lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Yea, even in a day when leaders of churches and teachers shall rise in the pride of their hearts, even to the envying of them who belong to their churches. So Moroni here is warning us that these things will come in a day. And of course, they've already come. So he's describing our day. Uh, but in a day in which the very problems that destroyed the Nephite church and the Nephite nation and civilization, those same problems will also be prevalent in our day as well. Remember, as we talked about the end of 4th Nephi, it was the entering of pride into the church that began uh, this cycle that eventually led to the destruction of the Nephites. It's as they, as described here, uh, they, they stopped believing in miracles. That's something that we talked about last week. Um, they stopped believing in miracles and instead uh, they had uh, secret combinations going about. <clears throat> Men going about trying to deceive one another, trying to take advantage of each other, uh, both outside of the church, but almost certainly within the church as well. And, and the power of God is denied and the churches become defiled and lifted up in the pride of their hearts. You know, how many people do you know within, you know, outside of your religious circles uh, accept the power of God or believe in miracles, which is something we'll talk a lot about in, in, in chapter 9. Um, you know, but how many of them uh, deny God or the, even the power of God? Uh, you know, this is something that is completely prevalent in our day. And again, it gets back to our own pride. We, we're smart. We know a lot of things and we think we know everything. And we think to the extent there are things that we do not know, that we are able to find explanations for them. 
We rely on our own intellects, our own abilities, our own scientific methods to discover everything that we think we could possibly want to know. Uh, but of course, that's very problematic because there are things that we cannot know. And the things that we cannot know and that we cannot discover through scientific method, I think, are the most important things. It's not the who, what, when, where questions. It's the why questions that are the most important. And science can never tell us those. We will always have to be looking to God uh, for those answers. But Moroni is telling us the Book of Mormon is going to come forth in a day in which <clears throat> men and women rely upon not the things of God, not the scriptures, not eternal capital T truth as we talked about earlier, but rather they will be looking for scientific proof that something is true. And they will put their, they will put their trust in themselves and in each other and their own abilities to deduce some type of meaning or some type of truth. Uh, but of course, they're about a, a fool's errand. They will never uh, discover the truth of God unless we are willing to listen to the Spirit, unless we're listen, willing to listen to the voice of God. Uh, verses 31 and 32. Yet it shall come in a day when there shall be great pollutions upon the face of the earth. There shall be murders and robbing and lying and deceivings and whoredoms and all manner of abominations when there shall be many who will say, do this or do that, and it mattereth not, for the Lord will uphold such at the last day. But woe unto such, for they are in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. Yea, it shall come in a day when there shall be churches built up that say, Come unto me, and for your money ye shall be forgiven of your sins. So again, the Book of Mormon is going to come forth in a day in which uh, spirituality will be in peril. Uh, people will deny the power of God and will turn to themselves. I think Moroni is telling us here, watch out because that's how the problem with the Nephite society started. They didn't look to God for their answers. They looked to themselves. They tried to discover all their answers on their own. And they failed. They failed because they didn't look in the right places. They looked to themselves to try to find their answers and eventually that search for their own answers led them to on a downward, uh, a, a, a downward spiral, spiral that eventually uh, resulted in the destruction of their entire civilization. Uh, verses 37 through 39. For behold, ye do love money and your substance and your fine apparel and the adorning of your churches more than ye love the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. O ye pollutions, ye hypocrites, ye teachers, who sell yourselves for that which will canker. Why have ye polluted the holy church of God? Why are ye ashamed to take upon you the name of Christ? Why do ye think that, that greater is the value of an endless... Why do you not think that greater is the value of an endless happiness than that misery which never dies because of the praise of the world? Why do you adorn yourselves with that which hath no life? And yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked and the sick and the afflicted to pass by you and notice them not. So in the previous verses we read, he was, you know, Moroni was, was chiding the churches of their, of their day or the, the organizations that are set up, the secret combinations that are set up to, to take advantage of each other. 
But here in these verses, he's not talking about these big organizations. It seems like he's, he's talking about us as individuals. You know, do you love your money and your substance and your fine apparel? Do you love them more than the needy and the sick and the afflicted? You know, do you, you adorn yourself, and I love this, you adorn yourself with that which hath no life. You spend your money, you spend your resources, you spend your energy trying to obtain things that are lifeless, that have no meaning, that do not allow you to progress. Because ultimately that's what life is, right? Life is progression. To be alive means to progress. We believe in eternal life means we believe in eternal progression. And damnation happens when we lose the ability to continue to progress. And so Moroni is calling us out here. He says, why do you spend so much time focusing on things that have no life? Things that don't help you progress. Things that do not draw you closer to God. And instead, of, and, and instead you spend your efforts focusing on things of no li- that have no life, that have no value. When instead you should be focusing on, on lives. On lives that matter. On lives that are there on lives that need your help, that need your support, that need you to, to be there for them. The sick and the afflicted, they pass you by and you don't even notice them. You don't notice these lives that are next to you because you're focused on these things that have no life, these things that have no value. Uh, what a profound idea and what a wake-up call for, for everyone. I know myself as I read this, I start to think, my goodness, what do I spend my time on? What do I spend my resources and my energy on? Do I spend it on things that have no life? While those living things, my brothers and sisters that stand in need, pass by and I don't even notice them. Uh, you know, what a beautiful way in which Mor- Moroni is able to juxtapose the, this idea of these lifeless things that we spend our our time trying to accumulate uh, and then compare that to those things that have life but which uh, we don't spend our time on but that would be of most value to us they would help us to progress and they would draw us closer to God and now we go to chapter 9 and here chapter 9 is great full of full of great doctrine and Moroni doesn't really hold anything back Uh, Let's start with verses 1 through 4. And now I speak also concerning those who do not believe in Christ. Behold, will ye believe in the day of your visitation? Behold, when the Lord shall come, yea, even that great day when the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, yea, in that great day when ye shall be brought to stand before the Lamb of God, then will ye say there is no God? Then will ye longer deny the Christ, or can ye behold the Lamb of God? Do you suppose that ye shall dwell with him under a consciousness of your guilt? Do you suppose that ye could be happy to dwell with that holy being when your souls are racked with the consciousness of guilt that ye have ever abused his laws? Behold, I say unto you that ye would be more miserable to dwell with a holy and a just God under a consciousness of your filthiness before him than ye would to dwell with the damned souls in hell. Ouch. Okay, Moroni is really getting serious here with, uh, with, with his language. Um, so let's parse through this here. Uh, what, what, what exactly is he saying? You know, in verse 2, I don't think he's using that as an argument when he says, uh, you know, 
in the, your day of visitation when God comes to you and the earth is rolled together as a scroll and, you know, when it's completely obvious that Jesus is the Christ, then are you going to believe in him? And I, and I don't think he's saying, I don't think he's expecting them to say, well, no, I'm going to continue to not believe in them. I think what he's saying is here, there is going to come a time, everybody, when it will be so obvious that Jesus Christ is Lord over this earth that Jesus Christ is your only source of salvation. There is going to come that time, and you need to be ready for that. And when that time comes, and then we go to verse 3, do you suppose that you'd be able to dwell with him under a consciousness of your own guilt? Do you believe that you can set aside Jesus Christ during this life? And then when it becomes so painfully obvious to everyone that you need him, that you'll just be able to Forget about those times that you ignored him and treated him as not and, and, and go on as if it, it's no big deal. No, what Moroni is saying here is, for those of you that do not accept Jesus Christ right now, there is going to come a time in which it will be so obvious that you have to accept him. And you're going to want to accept him. But you're not going to be able to do it. And why wouldn't you be able to accept him? Because you're not going to be like him. You will not be prepared to accept him. You can't just wake up one morning and change everything about you and say, Okay, today I'm going to follow Christ. No, this is a process. It takes time. It takes diligence. It takes effort. It takes the Holy Ghost to purify us over time. To make us better. To prepare us to return to his presence. We would feel so uncomfortable in his presence if we were to try to get there without first having gone to the, through the preparatory processes that are necessary before we return to his presence. So Moroni's call here is, everybody, trust me, there's going to come a time in which we're going to stand before Christ. And we need to prepare for that time. And how do you prepare to stand before Christ? By learning about Christ. By following Christ, by making yourself his, by keeping his commandments. That's how you prepare to stand before him. So, uh, probably a good idea if we all get started on that. Uh, and then verses 6 through 8. O then ye unbelieving, turn ye unto the Lord, cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps ye may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb at that great and last day. And again I speak unto you who deny the revelations of God and say that they are done away, that, that there are no revelations, nor prophecies, nor gifts, nor healings, nor speaking with tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Behold, I say unto you, he that denieth these things knoweth not the gospel of Christ. Yea, he has not read the scriptures. If so, he does not understand them. In other words, if you don't believe in a God of miracles, because that's what Moroni is talking about here. Remember, he just said, you got to prepare yourself if you're going to stand before God. And then in the next breath, he starts talking about miracles uh, and, and, and turning and denying revelations. So what he's saying is, if you don't believe in a God of miracles, then what is it exactly that you're believing in? Why would you believe in in a God who doesn't do miracles? Why would you believe in anything? Why would you believe in science? 
if it's not capable of performing miracles. Because the reality is, we're all in this earth. And our only chance of getting out of here, our only chance of moving on to something better, is through a miracle. We all need a miracle. Because without any miracle, we are all going to die. We are all going to be separated from each other. Our spirits are going to be separated from our bodies. And our science is not going to provide any solutions to that. Or whatever God you believe in, if it, that God is not capable of producing that miracle that helps you to overcome death, then what are you believing in? Why would you believe in that? You're just wasting your time if you believe in something that is not capable of overcoming this greatest of all challenges, spiritual death and physical death. Our separation from each other and our separation from God. Those deaths have to be overcome if anything good is ever going to happen. And so why in the world would you believe in a God that is not able to overcome those deaths, those challenges, those realities that each and every one of us confront? Now, my parents both passed away a little over two years ago. Their absence is a constant reminder to me. Ben, you're not going to make it out of here alive. And unless you can find some miracle to get you through this, what's the point? You're eventually just going to end up like your parents, buried in a grave, with no hope of progressing, if you rely upon your own, or if you rely upon your science, or if you rely upon whatever. It's only Jesus Christ that gives us the ability to overcome death, to overcome our separation from our loved ones and our separation from God. And so the corollary of that is, if we believe in Jesus Christ, then we better believe in a God of miracles. Then we should be a miracle-believing people. We should not be skeptical of every uh, uh, we should not be so readily skeptical. Skeptical. We should be believing. We should be looking for these miracles. And we will find them if we look for them. We should not pass off every coincidence as, as just something that matter-of-factly happened. But we should be looking for the hand of God in our lives because we expect miracles because we believe in Jesus Christ and he is a God of miracles. Otherwise, why would we believe in him? Otherwise, he's just like every other graven image. Uh, maybe he allows us to be happy for a little bit. Maybe he provides some justification as to why you're doing something. Maybe he teaches you good morals and you think that that's a good thing. And it is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But ultimately, if we are going to have any chance of salvation, we are going to need miracles. And so if we believe in Jesus Christ, we had better believe in a God of miracles. Verses 13 through 14. And because of the redemption of man which came by Jesus Christ, they are brought back into the presence of the Lord. Yea, this is wherein all men are redeemed, because the death of Christ bringeth to pass the resurrection, which bringeth to pass the redemption from an endless sleep, from which sleep all men shall be awakened by the power of God when the trump shall sound, and they shall come forth 
both small and great, and all shall stand before his bar, being redeemed and loosed from this eternal band of death, which death is a temporal death. And then cometh the judgment of the Holy One upon them. And then cometh the time that he that is filthy shall be filthy still, and he that is righteous shall be righteous still, he that is happy shall be happy still, and he that is unhappy shall be unhappy still. So this death is going to come across all of us. And we're all eventually going to be held accountable for our actions. Uh, that's, that's one thing that we have to believe in. But again, going back to this idea that we believe in a God of miracles. The greatest miracle that God has ever performed or will ever perform is the plan of salvation. The miraculous process through which he takes us, his sons and daughters, these imperfect beings, and makes us like him. That is the miracle of miracles. And he will never top that. And if we believe in God, if we believe in a God of miracles, then we have to believe in that plan of salvation. We have to believe in that resurrection, uh, redemption from an endless sleep that will come forth and small and great and stand before his judgment bar to be judged of him. And then, again, miracle of miracles, if we believe in Christ and if we have covenanted with him, if we have had faith in his name, if we have repented of his sins, if we have kept his commandments, and if we have that relationship with Jesus Christ, then we will stand before him and be found guiltless. And that will be the greatest miracle. These sons and daughters of God that are completely unworthy, being sent to this earth where we fumble all over ourselves, where we make all kinds of mistakes, where disaster upon disaster happen. Exhibit A, the Nephites getting destroyed because they refuse to keep the commandments. All of these disasters are always happening, but yet God saves us. But yet we are redeemed by Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a greater miracle than that? Of course, Moroni's answer is no. This is the greatest miracle. The fact that God is able to judge us. And those that are righteous will be righteous still. Those that are happy can be happy still. That is the great miracle of the plan of salvation. Verse 15. And now, O oh, all ye that have imagined up unto yourselves a God who can do no miracles, I would ask of you, have all, things, have all these things passed of which I have spoken? Has the end come yet? Behold, I say unto you, nay. And God has not ceased to be a God of miracles. So in other words, he's saying, if you're reading this, chances are you haven't been saved yet. Pretty, pretty safe guess. So there's still miracles to come. So expect miracles. Expect them to come. Expect them to be there because they are going to come. And if you've given up on miracles, that means you've given up on Christ. Because there's still many more miracles to come. Evidenced by the fact that you and I have not been saved yet. You and I are not yet in the presence of God. And we need that miracle to lift us up to the presence of God. So if we can still believe in that miracle, which is to come, certainly we can expect these smaller miracles, the easy ones in our life. And so let's not go through life 
faithless, not expecting God to perform miracles in us and with us and to us. But let's expect these miracles to happen because they will be everywhere if we will have eyes to see them, if we will but have faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 19, And if there were miracles wrought then, why has God ceased to be a God of miracles and yet be an unchanging being? And behold, I say unto you, he changeth not. If so, he would cease to be God. And he ceaseth not to be God and is a God of miracles. Just reiterating what we just spoke about. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in a God of miracles. Therefore, let's expect miracles in our life. Let's act like everything relies upon ourselves, but let's expect God to perform miracles in our lives to bless us, to help us to progress and to grow and to improve and to prepare us to return to his presence. Verse, uh, Verse 21, Behold, I say unto you, that whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing whatsoever, he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted him. And this promise is unto all, even unto the ends of the earth. Okay, well, this is a pretty big promise here. Whatsoever thing you ask the Father in the name of Christ, it will be granted unto you. But there's, there's a qualifier. Let's read verses 27 through 28. Oh, then despise not and wonder not, but hearken unto the words of the Lord and ask the Father in the name of Jesus for what things soever ye shall stand in need. Doubt not, but be believing and begin as in times of old and come unto the Lord with all your heart and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. Be wise in the days of your probation. Strip yourself of all uncleanliness. Ask not that ye may consume it uh, in your lusts, but ask with firmness unshaken that ye will yield to no temptation, but that ye will serve the true and living God. So what's the caveat to the promise that we just read about in verse 21, that whatsoever thing we ask for, God will give it to us? Well, If we are a true follower of Christ, and if we truly believe in Christ, if we truly have faith in him and we expect miracles, we will not ask things to simply consume it on our lusts. We will not ask for things to just simply make ourselves better. It's not like we're rubbing uh, Aladdin's lamp and out comes a genie and we get to tell him three things that we want. That's not it at all. We don't... God does not grant us according to our lusts, at least not to the faithful, because the faithful do not ask for those things that are lustful. They do not ask for that which they should not ask. But what do they ask for? They ask that they will be opportunities to serve the true and living God. They ask for chances to to do good, to improve the lives of those around them, to build the kingdom of God, and to lead their fellow brothers and sisters back into God's presence. And to those promises, or I should say in response to those questions, God always uh, gives his answers. And of course, great wording here. Doubt not, but be believing. Uh, As begin, as times of old, to come unto the Lord with all your heart and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. Believe in God. Doubt your doubts, as uh, Elder Holland said, which I think is such a great, great concept. If you have doubts, that's fine. All of us have doubts. 
but don't give them higher priority than your faith. Don't, don't give them greater weight than you would those things that you actually believe in. Doubt your doubts. You know, criticize them, analyze them, try to understand why it's possible that your doubts could be wrong. And then on the faith side, you know, sure, of course, analyze and, and give, but give fair weight to those things of faith. Don't just assume that because I doubt something, uh, then that's the way it must be. Trust God that there are answers to those doubts, answers to your questions, and then seek to find them. Verse 31, and this is where we'll end. Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. And so, as often is the case in these verses and these and these lessons, we we come full circle. Mormon began the, the chapter seven as we just talked about pleading with the Lamanites to come unto Jesus Christ, to give up their weaknesses, to give up their weapons, to stop fighting, to give up those things that are whatever it is that is present, preventing them from coming unto Jesus Christ. Let it go. And then he, Moroni ends his by saying, look, we were not perfect. The only way we are able to come unto Christ is the same way that you come unto Christ. And so, because you know your own imperfections, don't be surprised when you find our imperfections. Or I should say to the member of the ward, you know you're not perfect, don't be surprised if your bishop's not perfect. Or don't be surprised if that member of the 12 that you've had a brief interaction with, it turns out not to be perfect, or that you've heard stories about. Or if people within church history turn out to be imperfect, don't be surprised. Thank God that you recognize their own imperfections. Let's stop putting the Book of Mormon or let's stop putting our you know, ancient prophets or modern prophets or our Relief Society president or our bishop or our parents or anyone. Let's stop putting people on this pedestal of perfection that's so easy to knock down. Let's recognize that other than Christ, none of us are perfect, and we are thus all struggling together. Moroni had the same struggles that you and I struggle with. He was imperfect. And at the end, the conclusion and the takeaway is because we are all imperfect, we all need that God of miracles. We all need Jesus Christ to perform his ultimate miracle, to take away our imperfections, that we can be found guiltless when we stand before him. Because that's what the plan of salvation is. That greatest of all miracles. It's the path that allows God to take us from imperfect sons and daughters, incapable of progressing on our own, putting us on a path of progression, helping us along, providing a savior for us when we fall, and ultimately qualifying us for returning to his presence. That's what the plan of salvation is, and it is a plan of miracles. So have faith. Don't doubt Christ. Doubt your doubts, 
but have faith in Christ that he is a God of miracle and he will reserve his greatest miracle for you and I. That is taking us, lifting us up to stand before him and making it possible so that we can be found guiltless. And I hope that we'll you know, study these words, study these words that Mormon and Moroni spent their lives preserving so that we too could realize their imperfections. That we could look at these stories that uh, are true with a capital T, that teach eternal truth, that teach about Jesus Christ, and teach about his plan of salvation. Let's thank Mormon and Moroni that they did this to make it possible for us to recognize God, recognize his work, recognize his plan of salvation, and then pray that we follow it to return to their presence. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.